Hello, language hackers. This is Benny, and I'm welcoming you to episode 22 of the Language Hacking Podcast. It's a really exciting episode because we're chatting with my former so-called arch nemesis of language learning. Back in the day, this particular polyglot and I were known to disagree on some aspects of language learning. The opposing force that we're chatting with is none other than Steve Kaufman. But all joking aside, Steve and I are actually great friends now. And while we don't agree on every aspect of language learning, there are many things that we do agree on. In our conversation, we talk about comprehensible and compelling input. In basic terms, that's how you can learn a language from any online content, as long as you know the right kind of content to look for. The story behind Steve's language app, Link. What it's like living abroad and using languages in your job. Getting massive amounts of input for your language and how you get better at languages as you get older. So how are you enjoying the Language Hacking Podcast? We'd love for you to leave us a review. Not only will you let us know what you like about it, but you'll also help others like yourself discover the Language Hacking Podcast. A big thanks and shout out to Io Ma in Italiano, who wrote the review saying, I love this podcast. I look forward to this dropping every Monday. After a weekend of maybe not doing as much Italian as I should, The podcast reminds me to keep going. Benny and Shannon are really interesting themselves, but add in their polyglot guests and I feel my enthusiasm growing again for this beautiful language I'm learning. Your reviews really help in plenty of ways. Let us know what's working for you at languagehacking.com slash review. As always, we really appreciate hearing from you and we read every single one. The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com slash 22. Now, on to our chat with the one and only Steve Kaufman. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Hello, and welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast, where we share the fascinating stories from language learners around the world. We're your hosts, Benny Lewis. Hello. And I'm Shannon Kennedy. And joining us today is Steve Kaufman, a well-established polyglot, expert on comprehensible input and the founder of Link. Hello, Steve. Good morning or good afternoon, where you are, maybe. I don't know. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Before we get into the interview, do you want to share a little bit of your history with language learning and how you got into languages? Well, uh, you know, in a way, it started when I was uh, like a teen, well, 16, 17 years old. We'd had French at school. I couldn't speak. And then I got very motivated because of a teacher who motivated me to get interested in French culture, civilization stuff. I ended up going to France, studying there for three years. And then I, with the Canadian government, I was sent to Hong Kong to learn Mandarin Chinese. At the time, we were getting ready to recognize the People's Republic of China. Then I lived in Japan. So I always had, you know, in my professional career, you know, later on, I set up my own business in lumber and dealt a lot in Europe and Sweden and Japan. It was always useful. But in the last 15 years or so, I've gotten really keen because I have more time. I started learning Russian and a whole bunch of other languages. So I've learned more languages since the age of 60 than I learned before the age of 60. And part of that has been setting up Link with my son, Mark, which is it's always fun to work with your son as long as you stay out of the way. <laughs> you know, if you ever work with your kids, don't don't you suggest what should be done. So, and I right now I'm learning Arabic and Persian and having a blast. 
Yeah, so there's there's a, a lot we want to dive into here, and um, okay, I I guess uh, to get started with, um, just kind of taking a few steps back, that uh, you did not grow up bilingual. You got into language learning in your teens. Is that right? Uh, okay, that is not entirely true. Uh, I'm always aware of that. I was born in Sweden and moved to Montreal when I was five. And my parents were not Swedish; they were from uh, Czechoslovakia. Uh, and at home, they spoke mostly German. Uh, of course, there was French in Montreal. So you would say I was in a great situation. However, I was very stubbornly unilingual. Uh, my parents said, we're in Canada right now. And of course, you got to remember, Montreal in those days was what they called two solitudes. So one million people spoke English, two million people spoke French, and there wasn't too much back and forth. And the English kind of controlled the place. All of that was subsequently changed by the, when the nationalists came to power in the province. And so now it's very bilingual, but it wasn't the case then. But you could argue that I had the advantage. And I have no recollection of moving from being, obviously, a Swedish-speaking kid at age five uh, to arriving in Montreal and playing with English-speaking kids and communicating, obviously, and all of a sudden I could only speak English. But just to stay on that theme, though, when I was at the Longfest in Montreal and I was speaking to a group of 600 people, polyglots, okay, a polyglot group, and I said, how many of you grew up in a multi or bilingual family, even in Montreal? And of course, most of the people there were not from Montreal. They were from elsewhere in North America, mostly. And like hardly anybody put up their hand. So I would say probably I benefited from having heard these languages as a child. However, I firmly believe it's not a condition. And, and those 600 people in a room where I, maybe a handful put up their hands to say that they grew up in a bi or multilingual family would tend to support that. But in my own case, I can't say that. All of these heritage languages, was your motivation to learn any of them because of those ties that you originally had? No, if anything, uh, we were strongly allergic to learning any call it heritage language, you know, because as is often the case with immigrants, uh, and it's still the case, immigrants spend a lot of time, adults, denigrating the local society. People here, they don't have culture like we had in the old country, and the people here are lazy. And you hear that all the time. And so therefore, with my brother and me, that made us more staunchly against anything. <laughs> if my parents would say, oh, you should meet this girl, her parents are from, you know, somewhere, Czechoslovakia, very nice girl, like guaranteed I don't want to meet that girl. Like anything that had anything to do with that, we were totally allergic to. However, after having learned Russian, the age of whatever, 60 some odd, and my father, as when he was in university in Czechoslovakia, he, he went, he did a number of things, like he went mountain climbing within the Dolomites, and he and another guy pat, built their own kayak and paddled the kayak from Dresden to Copenhagen. And all of this was covered in the Czech press. So I had all these clippings in Czech that I could never read. So motivation, and this was after my father passed away, and it's a great sort of regret that I never learned Czech while my father was alive. But then having learned Russian, I said, like, I'm half the way there now. So at that point, I was motivated to learn Czech. But as a young person growing up, the more the parents pushed, you know, how good you know, old country, you know, they, they all culture and discipline, work hard. The more they pushed that, the more we pushed back. So I was not very motivated to learn uh, anything, quote, heritage as a kid. 
I can definitely understand that because in in Ireland, my mother was very um, enthusiastic about the idea of me learning Irish. But that kind of push meant me meant I was more rebellious and I had less interest in learning the language until, of course, I came back to it as an adult. Right. So absolutely, I absolutely understand where you're coming from. And I like that you've um, uh, one one thing I really like that I think we have in common is uh, an idea of trying to encourage as many people to learn a language. Like when I said, you know, is it because your background's bilingual? You you pointed out very rightly that that's not really important because there's loads of examples of people who aren't bilingual who got into learning languages. Right, exactly. So what um, I know you've uh, you've written a, a book on your experiences of learning the language, and then you went on subsequently to found a, a fantastic tool to help people learn languages. So what was the transition that um, that led to that, that led to beforehand where you were uh, dabbling in languages and getting a bit more serious with multiple languages to inspiring other people to learn languages? How, how did that happen? Well, first of all, my own transition into someone who is keen on learning languages. Again, I admit it is possible that having spoken Swedish till the age of five and then moved to English helped because the brain now is a little more flexible. However, I've met so many outstanding polyglots who didn't have that advantage. Uh, take Luca, for example, who is, uh, you know, a master. Like, he's amazing, right? He didn't have that. So it's not a condition. Even if it makes it easier for some people, doesn't mean that other people can't do it. We can all do it. And once you've learned a second language to a reasonable level of fluency, you know, it's amazing how we work, how our brains work. Once we have success with something, we want to do more of the same. We think we can do it. We know we can do it. It felt good to do it. We want to do more of it. And so that, to that extent, I would encourage people, regardless of their age, regardless of whether they were in a multilingual environment or not, or where they live, you know, go and do it. Do it once. The first one is the toughest. And once you've done it once, you'll want to do it again. So, and so I got keen. I mean, and then, uh, so when the government said, we need someone to learn Chinese, I said, like, I'm your man. I can do it. I didn't know anything about Chinese, but I can do it. And then I got keen, lived in Japan and so forth. So that got me keen. And so I was keen on languages. So I would often buy books, secondhand bookstores in Vancouver, German, Spanish, whatever. And always I would read them. And on every page, there's 10 or 15 words that I don't know. And every time I look them up in a dictionary, which takes quite a while, and no sooner do I close the dictionary than I've forgotten what I looked up. And then I make a list of these words, and I never, ever review that list. And it was just, and everybody, I think, has been through all that. Then I would buy these bilingual books, and you're forever, you know, you're reading on the left-hand side, and then you go look for that spot on the English where that word is. And it's, it's just all very inefficient. So that's kind of what motivated me once I became aware of, yeah, I used to learn like Chinese on big open reel tape recorders, right? So once you have the MP3 uh, mini disc player before the MP3, but then the MP3 player and you have online dictionaries. And so there's a range of, of technology there. Uh, this is long before, you know, the iPhone and everything else made me realize, hey, there is something that can help us learn languages. So you take that plus, so I got interested in learning Russian because I'd always, I'd read Russian novels as a kid. And, and I, I always have this thing, as you do too, that you don't want to focus too much on grammar. And I'd say that, that this is the way I learn. I learn I, the patterns and the language. I could use them. And they all, oh, yeah, but you can't do that for Russian. So I said, okay, we'll give that a try. So that was kind of a turning point with Russian. And then once I 
did it with Russian, and we developed Link along the way. I don't want to get it, it's a long story. We developed Link because we had an employee from China who couldn't speak English very well. So a whole bunch of things kind of came together, and it was a long, long, long labor of love, can we say. And, and the other thing I think you'll agree, both of you, is that when you communicate with people, some of whom are polyglots, some of whom are not, but vaguely interested in language, and you get positive feedback, and people say, you know, you really encourage me to learn languages. It's fun, actually. It's fun to communicate with people, get feedback from people. So it's the same as success in learning a language. Once you do something that actually seems to be working and is, uh, you know, at some level successful and gets positive feedback from people, you're encouraged to continue doing it. There's the odd negative comment, but we put those aside. <laughs> Sweep them up at the end of the day. Put them in the garbage can. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned a few times now a bit about your work and how it led to learning several more languages. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about that was for maybe someone who's interested in what sorts of career options are available to them in knowing multiple languages? Okay, I prefer to say that that learning languages increases the range of opportunities that are going to come your way. It, it's not always possible to tie it to a specific job. So if we take my own case, the fact that I studied in France as an Anglophone, then I wrote my foreign service exam in French as an Anglophone, that improved my chances of being accepted into the foreign service. Because if there's 10,000 people who apply for 50 uh, spots, and how many Anglophones wrote their exam in French? Not many. So I've improved my chances. I've improved my opportunities. Uh, then along came this opportunity to go and study Chinese in Hong Kong. Then I lived in Japan, and because I learned Japanese on my own, uh, A, I was able to do my job more effectively because I was, I, initially I was responsible for the food and agricultural product sector, then I was responsible for the forest product sector. I got to know people, what we call downstream, not just the Japanese, Mitsubishi, you know, the big trading companies where they all speak English, but the local wholesaler, the home builder, people like that. And as a result of which, I was hired by a major Canadian uh, forest products exporting company. And later on, because of my contacts and knowledge of the Japanese market, which I acquired because I spoke Japanese, I was able to start my own company. And because of my Swedish, I was very, I was able to develop suppliers, contacts in Sweden. So it's just the range of opportunities that come your way. So you can say, well, speaking languages doesn't mean you're going to have a job in the forest industry. Not necessarily but you just increase the range of opportunities. Like the thing is to be successful, you got to do stuff. doesn't matter. You just got to do something. And as you're out there doing something, you know, there's a whole bunch of potential opportunities. The more languages you have, the greater number of potentially good opportunities are going to come your way. But if you go and apply for a job and say, Hey, and I speak four languages, probably the employer doesn't care depending on the job. But for many, many jobs, the employer doesn't care. Yeah, it's kind of, it kind of a mixed bag whether it'll give you an advantage or not in employment. And it's why I've always taken the uh, benefits out of uh, the cultural immersion and the chance to get to know new people. And there's a million other reasons to to learn a language. Um, but one thing I did want to ask you that um, it's been uh, obviously a very central part of your life um, for an extremely long time. But your language learning process would not have been static for this time. Obviously, new tools have come along. Like you said, an iPhone's come along. You've built your own tool as well. But um, I, I think maybe like 
you've obviously made discoveries along this way, like for instance, coming across Dr. Krashen's work. So like, how has your language learning evolved uh, with moments like that uh, over these years? You know, if I look back to my experience with French and Chinese, which were the first two, I felt then that massive, like, before I ever heard of Stephen Krashen, massive listening and reading, massive listening and reading. That's what I did. Um, you know, when I studied Chinese in Hong Kong, there's no Mandarin speakers in Hong Kong. There's no one to speak to. Uh, but I listened massively. I listened to these uh, Xiangsheng, you know, these comic dialogues where they exaggerate in order to get the tones. I read voraciously and I was successful, more successful than the others who simply relied on their classes. You know, the teacher's going to teach them. So I've always been convinced that um, just instinctively that massive input is, is key. I think what has changed is that the, the ability to do the massive input has, has become so much easier now. I mean, I can import stuff from YouTube and Netflix into Link. Like, that's just inconceivable back then, right? Uh, I mean, my iPhone has, is, large, is more powerful than any language lab back 30, 40 years ago, language labs that cost 50 or $100,000 at universities. Everybody went in, they had rows of desks, and you turned on your, your open real tape recorder and whatever. So the technology has come a long way. In terms of method, I think what I've come to realize is just how uh, important it is to be able to live with the fact that you get things wrong. That, that you, can, you can be missing some of the most basic vocabulary items that you once learned and subsequently forget. And, and you might know some rather, you know, obscure words and you'll be looking for the word for shoe or something. Like, you're always going to trip over your laces, right? So, so that, that ability to deal and to just keep going and not to try and nail anything down. That if you just keep going and just let the language keep on coming at you, you will gradually pick up more and more of it. And, and uh, as you keep on improving, there will always be holes. There will always be holes. And so I think that's something, this, uh, this importance of sort of being, continuing to be active, not trying to nail anything down, try to consume more and more of the language and accept the fact that there will always be gaps, things that you can't say, things that you don't understand, they'll always be there. I'm curious to know some of your strategies for these gaps, because I feel like there's two different approaches that you can take and it'll depend on exactly what the gap is. But I'm sure you've kind of worked some some sort of system out um, when you come across a gap. Do you make a note of it and then spend some time on it or do you just leave it there and uh, like with comprehensible input, it'll eventually be filled? Well, of course, it depends the nature of the gap. Like I had a conversation in Russian yesterday. And I was amazed at what I couldn't remember. But, but there, it was a matter of short term. Like, as soon as my Russian-speaking counterpart told me the word, I, of course, I remembered it. So there is those gaps that you haven't spoken a language for a while. You start speaking, you're missing some words. There, I mean, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't take very long in conversation to have those sort of come back to you. Um, if I'm reading now uh, on link or whatever, obviously, a word that I don't know, I look it up. A word that I thought I knew because it's white and now I don't know while well, I look it up again. So if I'm reading, I, I tend not to like to read now. Uh, I do sometimes read a book, just a paper book, but there's so many, if there's too many words I don't know, I don't like doing that. So, you know, in terms of input, 
obviously, you understand less when you just listen. Uh, so then I go and read it. Then I can look things up. And after having looked the words up, I still don't know them. But I'm sort of step one towards getting to know them, right? And I'm confident that eventually, if I see them enough, uh, I'll kind of remember them, at least for a while, till I forget them. But I, I, I don't, um, yeah, it's just, if I'm reading, I'll look it up. If I speak and I make a mistake, then uh, I might be reminded of it. And that might help me not make the mistake next time. But no guarantees. You can make the same mistake. You know, at Link, I have my, when I was doing lessons with a tutor in Turkish or Persian or Arabic, and of course I have a record of all those conversations. They send me a report with my mistakes and I'll see the same mistake week after week after week. So it's a gradual process. You finally learn it and then you forget it again and you learn it again. I don't worry about it. I guess that's the answer. I certainly don't make any particular notes. I make no deliberate effort to get out those gaps, no. Yeah, I think uh, exposure to the languages in as many forms as you can is going to constantly help you improve upon it. And uh, it's great. Whenever I, uh, I've listened to you in other interviews and I see you talk about your language learning process, I'm always seeing so many parallels between how you've learned and how I've learned. And we've picked up a lot of the, the same tricks, as it were. But interestingly, when I was first exposed to you, it was through there's, um, there's a, a few things that we may not be seeing eye to eye on initially. And these are, as far as I'm concerned, very small aspects of a much, much greater picture. But it's been the beginning story of the um, entry into the polyglot community, as it were. So I'm I'm interested to hear how have you uh, found this entry to see these online polyglots and how have you interacted with them and seen what they do differently to you and how, what do you think about that? Well, anyone who does things differently from what I do is basically wrong. Of course, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just start there. Okay. No, I think the, um, you know, language learning is such a personal thing in terms of what we're interested in, which languages we're interested in, the different activities that we enjoy doing. It's all very personal. So there is no way that everyone is going to do things the same way. And uh, but I think 80 percent of it is essentially the same. 80% of it is curiosity. There is no language learner, no polyglot who isn't curious. If you're not curious, you're not going to bother, right? Curious. So curious, curious about cultures, curious about language, how the language works. And inevitably, we all want, to, first of all, therefore, we have to acquire the language from the language, from people who use the language. But we all want to communicate in the language. We all want to speak in the language. Uh, when we are speaking, it's fun. We're imitating the language. We enjoy that. That's almost like play acting. Uh, and we're also attentive to what the other person is saying. So we pick up on some usage, say, elements that we weren't doing correctly. So there's essentially, we all do the same thing. Some people may have some particular techniques that they enjoy, like Luca does his translation thing, which I'm not disciplined enough to do. Uh, I think Richard Simcott is more inclined to go to school because he enjoys that. Uh, you're out there using, even if you have a very limited range of words, you want to try it out on people, which I did when I lived in Japan because I was available to me. I was surrounded by Japanese people. I, I don't think the differences are that significant. Uh, it was more that I discovered very early that I <laughs> wasn't very difficult to get a rise out of many, so I <laughs> stuck the needle in them as much as I could. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> All in good sport, obviously. All in good sport, yeah. Well, I, uh, some people, once you get to know them, you can't, get, you can't stay angry at them. 
Benny is one of those. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, all in good fun. It's amazing that it's been that long too. And um, it's funny that the polyglot community has also evolved. When I first started, I think it was Anti-Moon or some such community. Do you remember Anti-Moon? I do, yep. And people were far more opinionated then. Like there was only one way, it's this way. And more critical of each other. And I remember I had just started learning Russian. And I thought I would put up a little, because I was discovering all this technology like MP3. I can create a recording and I can put it up there on the internet. So here I am speaking Russian. Well, I mean, they just tore me to shreds. Your pronunciation is terrible. That's awful. Blah, 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 blah. Whereas nowadays, when you go to a polyglot gathering, it doesn't matter what your level is. In whatever language, people are always encouraging. So I, I think the environment, because maybe it's much more, it's much broader today. Everybody's involved. Whereas in those days, people who considered themselves to be polyglots probably thought they were something special and you didn't quite reach my level and therefore you're no good. And so I think the whole mood has, has become much more positive. That's something that I'd like to have you expand on a little bit, uh, because I feel like for a lot of people learning languages, especially those who are kind of at the entry level, one of their biggest fears is getting that kind of feedback that you got on your Russian recording. Um, And so it almost inhibits them from being able to put something out there. So what would your advice be to someone who is in that place? Well, you know, we learn languages for ourselves. You are learning for yourself. You're not learning for other people. So if I'm interested in Russian for whatever reason, to read, uh, you know, Tolstoy or whatever, or to understand movies and stuff, I'm just going to plow ahead. And if someone comments on my Russian, it doesn't bother me. You also have to remember that when you start, you won't be very good. In fact, you may not be very good for a year or two, but if you keep at it, you will only get better. And as long as you are getting better, then you should be satisfied because you can always look back and say, six months ago, I didn't understand this movie, story, whatever. I understand it now. Uh, six months ago, I, couldn't, I had real trouble stringing a couple of sentences together. And now I can, albeit with mistakes, I can communicate. So you have to always, and it's not just because other people criticize. I think sometimes people are their own worst critics because we're never as good as we would like to be. I don't care who you are. I, I would love to go back and spend more time on my Japanese when I hear my, I, I hear my mistakes, even though I speak Japanese quite well. We're never quite satisfied. And that's kind of in the nature of learning a language because you speak your own language. Maybe you don't speak it very well. Some people have Irish accents, for example. Most horrible among accents, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Up there with Scottish and Australian. But anyway... Uh, No, no. So you always feel you'd like to be better. And so sometimes people can find this discouraging. Geez, you know, I've been at it and I keep forgetting things and my pronunciation is not uh, native-like and stuff. And so if that comes from someone else, maybe it's even harsher, tougher to take. You just have to ignore it. You have to keep feeding yourself positive messages because the more positive your approach to language learning, the better you will do. It's, It's that simple. So you ignore positive uh, negative comments from others and you avoid making negative comments to yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, when you and I first started putting content on online, that also made it quite unique that uh, people are more likely to be critical because of that. Whereas nowadays, it's so much easier to put any content online, you know? 
Um, and in the last, uh, you say that you've kind of had this burst since uh, you turned 60 of getting into even more languages. And one of the most inspirational things about your story is the fact that you are showing people that age doesn't matter, that you can be, you're, you can be keeping your brain active and malleable to be open to learning new languages, no matter how old you are. And I think this is uh, like, I refer to you all the time because of this. And I'd be curious uh, for what you'd be able to share with anyone listening who may be over 60 and may be thinking to themselves, it's too late for me. It's too, I'm too old to learn a language. What have, what's been your words of advice for them? Well, first of all, I, someone did once say to me or said, said you know, well, it's a, just a fact that uh, when you're older, uh, you don't learn as well. And so I said, OK, what's old to you? And he said, 40. <laughs> OK, <laughs> so, uh, you know, old is a relative term. Uh, it may be that uh, the neurons grind more slowly when you're older. That's possible. It may be that some people, it's, I always related to this idea that some people have a talent for languages. So maybe that's true. But that's probably not the major factor. Like, it may be that some people are more talented than others. It may be that a 60-year-old, maybe the brain cells are not as alert as they were at age 20. Personally, I haven't found that. Personally, I think I'm learning, if anything, faster now than before because of the range of content and technology and everything that's available, because of my experience in learning languages, because the more languages you learn, the more flexible the brain becomes. You know, I'm not surprised by strange things in Arabic. It's just, that's how they do it. I'm just going to have to learn. Uh, however, even if you say, okay, I'm not as talented. Okay, I'm older. I'm not as smart. Whatever. Uh, it doesn't matter. You can still do it. You can still do it. That's not a reason not to do it. The fact that somebody, I, I, my wife drags me out to play golf. I'm not that fond of golf. She's even better than I am. You talk about an embarrassing situation, right? But that doesn't mean I shouldn't play golf. The fact that other people are better. The fact that some people, for whatever reason, better opportunity, better exposure, smarter, dumber, whatever, they learn better. That's no reason not to learn. And there is no question that people at any age can learn. That is scientifically proven. Uh, and to some extent, your life experience, there is this theory, uh, I read it somewhere, I can't remember who, oh yes, it's, it's ah, my, my the German neuroscientist I always quote, Manfred Spitzer. He said, when, as you get older, you learn more slowly, but you learn better. He says it, and he studies the brain. In other words, we have so much life experience. We have so many things that we have learned, perhaps other languages, or even our vocabulary, as we continue reading, our vocabulary in our own language continues to expand. So you have all of that as a base, and apparently we learn more slowly, but we learn better. I, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I can't say if that's true or not true, but yeah, there's no reason why a person aged 60 or 70 who has perhaps never even learned another language can't do it. They just have to apply if they are motivated, if they apply themselves with enthusiasm, if they spend the time, they can learn. They may not learn as fast as a 10-year-old. That's probably true, but so what? If you enjoy doing it, go for it. You mentioned just a moment ago that you and your wife go and play golf. Do you find that some of what you do for language learning has helped you better learn other skills in your life? Doesn't help my golf. <laughs> <laughs> it, can't, it doesn't help my golf because I'm always thinking of other stuff other than golf, like, like languages or link or something as I'm going around the, the links. Um, difficult question. 
uh, I think that any activity in the brain, okay, and, if, and, and any activity is, is good for the brain. And so you become a little more alert. Like you have to be alert to be a language learner. You have to notice what's happening in the language. And so you become alert, you're, you're training your brain to pay attention to some details of pronunciation or the structure itself. So as you're doing that, I think maybe if I, maybe I'm a little more alert when I read an article in a newspaper, or, you know, following certain situations, maybe I'm just a little bit more alert. You know, it's, it's being active. If you are active in sport A, you're probably going to do better in sport B because you're physically fitter. And, and also, uh, you know, I, I always relate language learning to literacy. And uh, you know that in all modern societies, there's 20 or 30% of the population that don't read very well. And if you go to prisons, 60 or 70% of the prison population doesn't read very well. So literacy skills are a major predictor of success in life. And I think some of the methods that we use for learning other languages could be applied to literacy training. Even dyslexia is related to hearing. So, you know, like at Link, we combine listening with reading. Combine listening and reading. Don't just give the kid, hey, choose the book for the kid. You're going to read this. I don't want to read it. You know, let the kid choose the book. Give him audio with the text. Do different things to encourage. Like at Link, okay, you get, you know, uh, statistics on how many words you know and, and awards and stuff. I think some of that stuff could be used to improve alertness, literacy skills, things that apply to many, many other aspects of our lives. So language learning, in a sense, is an activity which I think has application for other, for other uh, sectors of our life, although not golf. <laughs> and um, you've referred to, to Lincoln, we've kind of alluded to it a few times, and it is actually among my favorite tools in learning a language. It's um, for people who don't know, it's especially useful for when you're reading text. And like you said, you can attach MP3s to it and it helps you track uh, the words that you're actually learning so you can come back and review them. So could you expand on uh, that summary I've just given to give people a better idea of what is Link and how is it unique as far as language learning systems go? Okay. Now, obviously, to speak well, you have to speak a lot. I think we all agree that you have to speak well, you have to speak a lot. Uh, and if you're going to speak a lot, it's better to have very meaningful conversations with people on a variety of subjects. So that means you have to build up your potential. You have to build up your vocabulary. You have to build up your comprehension. You have to build up your familiarity with the language, with phrases, with structure. So what Link does, it sort of two stages at Link. If I look at my most recent experience in learning languages, I think one thing, to answer Shannon's earlier question, one thing that has changed is is the many stories that we now have at Link, and which I didn't invent, but they're the sort of point of view stories uh, with circling questions, which I think was developed by the TPRS movement in the States. But, but it's stories with a lot of repetition, repetition because of different points of view, repetition because of these circling questions where the same structure repeats. So typically at Link, we, we suggest that people start, well, I should step back, in every of the each of the 37 languages, there's a lot of content in our libraries, always audio and text. Anybody that starts learning a language should listen and read. Just reading is a lot tougher than listening and reading. And the initial 
what we recommend is the mini stories, 60 of them where there's a lot of repetition. That's what I've done for Romanian, for Greek, for Arabic, Persian, Turkish, and so forth. But I think what's, what's now particularly, and, and then I should say there's a bunch of functionality where you save words and phrases, there's differential highlighting on the screen, there's flashcarding, there's all those kinds of things. Uh, but what's really good now is that you can bring in content from anywhere on the web. So you can bring in, because so many uh, YouTube videos have subtitles, uh, and these are in fact timestamps that you can then, we have a, a browser extension, you can just click on that browser extension and it comes in as a lesson. So you have the video, you have the audio, you have the text, so you can study it. Netflix doesn't allow us to capture the video and the audio, but we at least capture the subtitles. So that's just as an example. Obviously, you've got audiobooks, you've got, uh, you know, newspaper articles, magazine articles, podcasts. The link sort of takes you from the sort of beginner, the incubation stage, which is these mini stories or other beginner material, uh, which you have to listen to often. And then as you break out of that into authentic material, link enables you to import a whole range of content, but all of the functionality still applies. Uh, we are, in fact, as I speak, working on uh, Link 5.0. We're going to improve uh, the user interface. We're going to make the, uh, the library, which has been a bit of a weak spot. It's difficult to find stuff. Uh, a lot more like Netflix, a lot easier to navigate, to find things. The lesson page, it's just going to have a lot of new features on it. So as good as it is now, I'm talking a bit like a snake oil salesman here, but as good as it is now, it's uh, it's going to be better in a, in a couple of months. Link is also probably one of my favorite language learning tools and the all the different things that you can do with it as far as importing content, the content that's available within Link itself. It's really amazing and it gives you quite a bit of diversity as to how you can use it. Um, I know that you also personally use Link. Um, so would you mind sharing a little bit about what your study process is with your own app? Okay, so I typically get up before my wife and I make breakfast. So I'm uh, making, uh, you know, there's uh, 15, 20 minutes there chopping up fruit, making our muesli in the morning, getting the coffee going. Uh, we have a, an espresso machine, which is uh, my pride and joy. So there's 20 minutes and then I clean up there's 20 minutes, maybe not 20, 15. So there's at least 35 minutes there of listening time. I always listen. So when I listen and I'm, I will either listen to many stories, say in Arabic or now I'm doing Levantine Arabic as well as standard Arabic or Persian. And so there's always things that I don't understand. Or in the mini stories, there's areas that I did know, I no longer know, or structures that I want to, that I all of a sudden noticed that I didn't notice before. Or if I'm into a podcast or more difficult content, then there's lots that I don't understand. So maybe I understand 10, 15%. So the listening triggers my curiosity. I didn't understand. So, and there'll always be another half hour during the day. Either I, I'd like to have a, you know, a, a workout or I'm in my car. So there's 45 minutes to an hour of listening away from the computer. Now I'm curious about those things that I didn't understand or that I want to kind of look at in more detail. And then I'll sit down, uh, typically in the evening, uh, possibly in the late afternoon before dinner or after dinner, and I'll sit down for a half hour to an hour and go through those lessons on link. Either looking up new words or, uh, you know, going through the lesson where it's full of yellow words that I once saved that I just don't know what they mean anymore. And I look them up again so that there's that, that reading slash linking on my iPad component that comes at the end of the day. 
So you put them together, there's an hour and a half, sometimes two hours a day of work. And, and I would say to anyone, you know, learning a difficult language like Arabic, and this was the case for Russian and anything else, it takes a long time. Don't get discouraged. If you're forever looking, you know, coming across this yellow word that you've looked up before and you don't know what it means. And, and you go on and on and on. And it looks like you'll be forever dealing with an unlimited supply of words you don't know. But gradually, slowly, and I've had the experience with Russian, with Czech, with any number of languages, slowly, 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 the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle start to come together. But don't be impatient. And how do you bridge the gap from doing all of this reading and listening to speaking the language? Well, the thing about speaking is, obviously, if you have 20 languages, you can't be speaking 20 languages every day. Uh, so, you know, my motivation, you know, typically what I do, if I say, okay, I got a 90 day challenge, I'm going to put out a video in Turkish or, or Arabic after 90 days, then I better practice. So then I'll get a tutor and twice a week I'll speak with tutor. And so I have in those languages, I have a, a record of all of those. I still have them and I sometimes review them of all those conversations that I had with my tutors. But if I don't have any particular need, I'm not going to put out a video in Arabic the next little while, I don't worry about it. I just let my passive knowledge accumulate. But I did have a chat with my, both my Arabic tutor and my Persian tutor after a long lapse where we hadn't spoken and I had just been listening and reading and both were quite surprised at how much I had improved. So input activities does, it not only improves your potential, it actually improves you. To a point. So after a while, so then I say, that, you know, getting to where you can speak well is a matter of either opportunity or need. So if I lived, when I lived in Japan, I had a need. So I was speaking all the time. Poorly, but I was speaking. Uh, so if you have the opportunity or you have the need, you're going to speak more. And if you have a strong base of comprehension and vocabulary, you will activate rather quickly. But when you first start out, you will stumble. But uh, if you have poor comprehension and few words, you will stumble even more. <laughs> so, you know, the idea that somehow it's, there are people theoretically who understand well and who are too afraid to speak. Yeah, those people exist, but those people would be even more afraid to speak if they couldn't understand. I'll give you an example. So uh, my golf game being what it is, I grab a couple of golf clubs and we have little fluff balls that don't go very far when you hit them. So I head down to the local schoolyard uh, with the intention of running around the schoolyard and hitting my golf balls, which I do for about 10 minutes. And then this lady comes over from the schoolyard and said, you know, uh, we started up school now and uh, with the COVID regulations, you can't be on the field here until 3.30. Okay. So I pack up my stuff and lo and behold, the parents are arriving to pick up their kids and they're Iranian. Wow. <laughs> so I engaged all these ladies in, in Persian for about 15 minutes. So you never know where the opportunity is going to present itself. That's right. And um, like I'm all about speak from day one and getting those opportunities. But what I absolutely love about um, a lot of your philosophy and that it's so integrated into how Link works is how much it's based around comprehensible input. So for people who aren't aware of that, could you give us a, a little idea of what is comprehensible input and how does your system take this into account as you're learning? Well, comprehensible input, I, I must say that I'm, I'm a bit of a deviant from pure crashinism. Comprehensible input is a message that is, comprehensible means you can understand it. So obviously when you start on the language, you don't have comprehensible input. You don't understand a thing. It's just noise. 
so uh, in a way, I think Eden Krashen now talks about compelling input. So the CI now refers to compelling input. So it's compelling if it's important to you and comprehensible. Uh, to have input that's comprehensible, this is a boy, this is a dog, of no interest, right? So, so it has to be compelling and it won't be compelling if it's not comprehensible. So what Link says is everything can become comprehensible. Even the mini stories, to me, when I start out in the language, they are compelling because I'm motivated to learn the language. The stories themselves are not particularly compelling, but because they are, they use the most frequently used verbs in the language, frequently used structures, I'm interested in learning the language, I'm interested in that feeling that when I start out, the whole thing sounds like noise, and a month later, I understand all these stories. To me, that's, that's motivating, maybe not to everyone. But that will only take you so far. At some point, you have to move to genuinely compelling. Compelling not just because it's new, okay? Again, I always quote Manfred Spitzer. The brain likes repetition, but it likes new things. So you have to have a variety of, of repetition with new. And so compelling input, by definition, therefore, is comprehensible. So you have to start with stuff that's not that intrinsically compelling with a lot of repetition, and you move to stuff that is intrinsically interesting, which for me is, say, Al Jazeera podcasts. But it's not really comprehensible. How do I make it comprehensible? I get, actually, I pay someone to transcribe them so that I can read them and look up words. So I am converting something that is should be compelling, should is interesting, but not really comprehensible. And I use link to look up the words so that if I continue doing this, reading and then list, I listen again, I still don't understand, I read it again, I listen again, then I get tired of that, it's now old, and I go and grab something new that I don't understand. And so I'm actually dealing with semi-comprehensible input, but which is compelling because I want to understand it. So, so there is this transition from comprehensible with lots of repetition, but not intrinsically interesting towards stuff that is at first potentially interesting, but not totally comprehensible. And eventually it becomes totally comprehensible. When I reach a level, as I am say in Russian, where I can listen to a podcast, I don't need the text. I understand what they're saying. They're talking about something that's interesting to me. My language skills are improving. That's the best case. Okay. The other thing that Link does and, and an area where where um, I disagree with Crash, and we discussed this, I believe that the ability to notice is very important. And I think the, that you, you notice more and more as you listen more. So you, you start to notice things. Some, you have to want to notice. Like he thinks it's all, you know, it just happens naturally. To some extent it does. But, but you have to want to notice how things work in the language. And to that extent, comprehensible input, massive input, that's how you learn. You've got to get as much exposure. Don't worry about nailing it down. The input part is just exposure, more and more exposure. Uh, even the flashcards, when I do them, it's just exposure. It's just a different form of exposure. But you also have to want to notice what's happening in the language because it's structured differently. You know, you have to notice that, that uh, you know, in, in Russian, the, the unaccented syllables, the O becomes ah. You got to notice that. A lot of people don't notice that. You have to notice it. You have to want to notice it. So to me, comprehensible input is, is the language is going to come into you from the source, but you have to notice what's happening. Much of it you'll notice automatically, but some of it you have to deliberately look for. And that's kind of what Link does. It offers you the input at different levels, 
It offers you a, a means of, of sort of noticing what's happening and, and, and saving it to a database and, and a means of, therefore, a bunch of functionality that helps you mine this content for words and phrases and an ability to bring in uh, content from wherever you may find it on the internet, more or less. <laughs> One of the questions that we like to ask everyone who joins us on the podcast is what language hacking is to them? Uh, language hacking to me is the teacher is the language. So you are the sleuth. You are the discoverer, the explorer, the adventurer. You have to learn about the language by yourself. Now, a teacher can help you, uh, particularly if you're in control of the teacher. So when I'm on with the tutor, I tell the teacher what I want her mostly to do. And I have found that women are much better than men because men say, I'm going to teach you this. And I'm a, you know, whereas women are much more flexible. Okay, that's no problem. So I ask the questions if I'm curious about something. Uh, so language hacking is the ability to take the language uh, as you discover it and pick your way through it and find out how that language works. And as you do that, you naturally then develop some new language habits. Because to speak a language well, you have to develop new habits. You don't have to theoretically know about the language. You actually have to develop these habits so you don't have to think about it each time. You actually naturally start to say more and more of it correctly. So language hacking to me is this, is this process of, of picking your way through the language and discovering the language. But no question that a book might point something out that you hadn't noticed. A teacher can point something out that you hadn't noticed. Um, listening to yourself speak and noticing your own mistakes can help you notice things. So there's a bunch of stuff that can help you along the way, but, but you have to be in charge of the hacking process. Very good answer. Absolutely. And um, as a final question, what um, kind of things do you have on the horizon coming up? You said you've got Link version 5.0. What other things have, uh, in terms of language projects and, and the like? Well, one of the things that I've enjoyed doing is, is uh, trying to develop more content for those languages where there isn't a lot of content. And for example, for Persian, uh, I found uh, two groups of people in Iran through Upwork, which is this outsourcing uh, website, but in particular, this one girl, Sahra, and she produced a bunch of sort of monologues where she talks about herself, her life. She was traveling in India. She visited some yoga, you know, whatever they call them, you know, not a studio, but whatever they're called, you know. An, an ashram, yeah. Uh, I can't even remember all terms she used, but it's just very interesting. And she has a nice voice and she speaks at, just at the right speed. And then she creates circling questions behind each, each one of these. And then she also produced a history of, your, of Iran, 26 episodes, five minutes long, simple language, each one with her circular questions. If we could do this in Turkish, in Arabic, in, in other languages where there isn't so much content, uh, I would like to, you know, even this idea that people just talk about themselves. So we have one called the Iranians. So we have a bunch of Iranians talking about themselves, what they do. One lady runs a confectionery shop somewhere in Tehran. Just always spoken first, then transcribed, ideally with circling questions. So, so that would be an interesting thing to do. To the extent, I also have a, uh, where I studied Ukrainian in Lviv, the head of the Ukrainian language school there said she was going to get her students to do something along those lines. So I'm very interested in creating content for that intermediate level. Because I, as I explained earlier, I have our, our mini stories for getting started, and then you go to the genuinely difficult material. 
But I found it in Greek, in Romanian, in every language. It's a big step, you know, and it's very difficult. And I'm a bit of a bear for punishment, but a lot of people are frustrated if they're constantly, you know, they can't understand it. There's too many unknown words. They keep forgetting the words and stuff. So if there were more intermediate content with the circling questions, because then you get within the same story, you get the same vocabulary repeating. And I'm sure you'll agree that anything that repeats very soon after you first encountered it, forget all the algorithms, just get it to repeat within that same story a few times. And it's going to help you a lot. So I would like to do more to generate uh, intermediate content in, I tend to do it in the languages that I'm learning, pretty selfish, but uh, if, if we could organize that on a broader scale, uh, that would be a good thing. And uh, I'm not involved in uh, revamping Link. I mean, Mark runs Link and he has his team of developers and whatever they are, you know, graphics people and stuff. I don't do that. But uh, certainly on the content side, I have been trying to do that. And, uh, and, and one thing we want to do a better job of at Link too, and this is, I know Mark wants to do this, where we have content that's available for sale, including uh, your series, Benny, we want to do a better job of featuring it so that people can find it. One of the problems with our library is that everything gets lost and you can't really find anything. And so uh, we want to have more product, more product for sale. It's a good, it's good value. You know, you're going to get a month or so out of it. Why wouldn't you spend 10 or $20 for something really good, professionally done? Uh, so those are some of the things I think that uh, are on the horizon. Excellent stuff. Well, it's been very interesting catching up with you. And um, we'll definitely been, uh, be sharing links, uh, links to link um, in, the <laughs> in the show notes. And of course, all your social media and such and your YouTube channel. And um, I found it very interesting. So thank you so much for coming on and joining us on the podcast. Thank you. And I want to congratulate both of you on the work you do on social media, promoting language learning. It's a good thing we do. It's a good thing that we do because there's people only benefit. There are no downsides. We're not selling soft drinks or chocolate bars. You know. Exactly. <laughs> it's a good way of putting it. All right. Well, on that note, I'll wish all our listeners a very happy language learning. Happy language learning. Happy language learning. In every episode, Shannon and I like to share takeaways that you can take action on and put into play right away in your language learning. And in this review, Steve discussed the importance of compelling input. What is compelling input? It's any content in your target language that you find interesting. That means that that boring old textbook just won't cut it. For me, compelling input includes the TV shows that I like to watch in other languages, or the YouTube videos I follow with subtitles to help me understand things, or even the social media accounts that I follow in other languages. Now, it's over to you. Is your input compelling? If not, it's time to find something that is. Let us know your answer and what compelling input you're using or are going to start using over in the comments for this episode at languagehacking.com 22. We hope you enjoyed this interview. We definitely found our discussion with Steve very interesting. Thanks for listening. And if you found this interview compelling, don't forget to leave us a review at languagehacking.com review. Until next time, happy language learning. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. 
The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis and Shannon Kennedy and produced by David Sobel, with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. Theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and happy language learning.